Uh, this is the Cop Think Podcast, where we answer the question, why do the police do what they do? I'm the host, Brian Casey. My guests are Dan King and Brian Wanshura. Did I say that exactly right? Exactly right. Wanshura, yep. Good job. Thank you. And this is the topic of conversation is uh, these two fellows were in a gunfight in 2012 where Dan was shot twice and Brian returned fire and killing the bad guy. So I wanted to give that part away because anytime I talk to cops about intense events at work, I'm always kind of interested in how was your day going before that? What day of the week was it for you in cop language and, and what were you guys up to? And I know that day was significant because of another event. That's the big one, yeah. That's what really set the tone for the day. What do you, what, tell us about it. Uh, 20, 30 minutes into our shift, our boss left the roll call and went to join a task force that was going to do a a bust on a guy coming into town from Minneapolis with drugs. They basically boxed him in and he wasn't having it and started ramming and slamming his vehicles and uh, tried to get away. He almost crushed a few cops and then they, they shot him, you know, immediately. And social media blew up and we were within an hour hearing about retaliation. And so there was a lot of people on edge, all the coppers thinking, well, these guys are going to roll over here and just start shooting, you know, the, the gang members, because he was a, a gang member. So the whole tone was kind of tense and then we were backed up pretty bad because of the call volume because so many cops got tied up on that scene so we were running a gun on the whole day yeah so you were going call to call and you were working the afternoon shift started 16 1600 1600 and uh this had happened earlier in the day it happened right at just half an hour like 16 30 oh, we oh. were it was we were just coming out of roll call and they're yelling shots fired so um we basically jumped up and got over there Helped out a little bit and then just started taking calls. We, we got stuck there for about two hours on evidence, but then we just went call to call the rest of the night. You know, and that was the same district. I know I know what it's like to work uh, on the same day that an officer gets hurt or that there's an officer involved shooting. There's definitely kind of a different mood in the department. Is that kind of a seriousness? or Absolutely. Um, and, you know, you're worried about the officers involved. You know, I know they weren't physically hurt, but, you know, they're starting a whole different part of their life now because a life was taken. So, I mean, it, it uh, sets a tone. What do you think, Brian? I mean, yeah, you, you just know you're going to be busy for sure the rest of the night. I mean, you're just, everything's so backed up. The calls are backed up. Um, you're kind of just in defense, you know, defense mode the rest of the night trying to play catch up. And, you know, you're obviously worried about the guys who are involved in that and, you know, their families and just the process that starts when that something like that happens. Hmm. It's intense. Yeah. So, and then you want to obviously imagine, wow, it's going to happen all over again. It's but. a while to eight hours later, you know, the, the sergeant on duty that night, can I name sure. names? Sergeant Hazlett was his first officer involved shooting, uh, that first one where his officers were involved, you know, yeah. and he got on that scene, handled it really well. Eight hours later, there's another officer involved shooting me. And now one of his people, me, is hit. Yeah. And, you know, and then he's got another guy down, another uh, a suspect down. So yeah. he uh, he really stepped up. He'd only been a sergeant about a month, I think. And and his, he stepped into the, the meat grinder that day. So, yeah. All right. I mean, I really had a lot of respect for him. Good. So tell us how your day went then and what led up to why you're here today. Well, I'll tell you, um, you know, when I do the, the presentation, we talk about this a lot to police departments and various uh, organizations and. I tend to do all the talking. I think Brian likes that, but I don't mean to cut him off. So please, Brian, if you have something, I don't want to be the dominating force here. But 
Um, we, we ended up on a perimeter again, somebody running with a gun later in the night. And then we basically at about 11, 15 decided, you know, we're going to take a bit of a break. We're starting to play catch up. So we backed into a spot, um, right near the police station, just across the way is an alley, yeah. high fence behind it. There's no way to approach the, the car unless you will get, you'll get seen. And then of course we hear, uh, the bolo go out about, um, the guy with, uh, stole his brother's shotgun and left the house. So we heard the guys go to that call, take the call, air the information. And I remember thinking about it going, oh, they, they thought he was going to hurt himself. But it was in the back of your head. And we're just sitting there talking. And I think, Brian, you were you were having a house built? Yeah, and, we're uh, in the process of building a house. And um, I do remember when we heard the call come out, it was the theft happened, like you said, half hour, 45 minutes. To, I think the cops even getting there. And it was on the far east side of the district. And we're probably thinking, like, you know, the odds of this guy running into this guy are honestly pretty slim. You know, you get you really get these kind of calls all the time. And uh, obviously, the chances of running into that person are, are pretty slim. But um, that's, that's for whatever reason, that night it happened. Isn't well, that funny about placing that sometimes you go look for trouble and find it? Or not, and sometimes trouble comes looks for you. Well, again, he must have been moving very fast across the city because he was on foot, and he had to have been moving out because when we finally did, you know, see him, he appeared in front of us. Didn't see us. We were far enough back in the alley and blacked out. Um, he was, uh, you know, on his mission. So it was it was interesting to all of a sudden there he is. It well, then, okay. So let me just set the scene a little bit. It's dark. Yep. You're by the old Hams Brewery, which where my dad used to work. Yep. And um, you were to treat what cops do if they're going to let their guard down a little bit. They're going to position themselves where they feel protected. They on. definitely should in this yeah. day and age, and yeah. even even then. So you, you were know. sitting there, and then just tell it, take us through it. We were sitting there, um, and there's a there's a street light out on um, Minnehaha, and so it was really hard to look and see us, the police the police car because it was just it was so it was backed up in into basically an alley about fifty feet back from and it would have been really difficult for us to see. We did have our car running, I believe, um, and for whatever reason he didn't he didn't hear it or he acted like he didn't hear it, but he was, he kind of stopped under that street light. And I just remember seeing it looked like he had basically a, a shouldered rifle on his shoulder, how you, how you hold a rifle with sling. the sling around your shoulder. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing that, that's that pipe like pipe like object coming up over his shoulder. And I looked at Dan, I'm like, that's the guy. I just, I just knew it was, like that was the guy from earlier who stole the, the yeah, shotgun. Was, holy crap. And I remember, I'll never remember when I look and I, I finally understand that there's, that's a pipe, that's a barrel. And I just remember, I, was, I never took my eyes off and I remember drawing my gun, sweeping my own leg. I'm driving and I'm just, we're sitting, I'm in the driver's seat. And I remember sweeping it across and putting it right by my knee and thinking, here we go. And then I, I, I think I even said, get your gun out. Like, like he wouldn't know, you know what I mean? But, and we dropped it and drive and he had walked out of view. We, we wanted alley, we so. wanted to let him cross in front of us so we could approach him from the rear and kind of sneak up on him a little bit rather than drive head on at him. Whether yeah. that was the right call or not, I, I don't know. Um, but it's what we decided to do. And 
I remember the radio being so busy, we couldn't even get on the air at that point and, um, and tell anyone that I, I think we're out with this guy. And Dan, we waited probably 15, 20 seconds for him to pass in front of us, uh, continuing towards Payne Avenue on Minnehaha. And we swung the car in behind him. And as soon as Dan pulled onto the street, he started running. He took one look over his shoulder and he, he knew we were coming out of that alley then because I did turn the lights on, the headlights on. And once the opening in the alley was clear and he was gone or you know out of sight, I thought, let's just whip out on him real quick. Well, he was, he was moving fast. And uh, he just started taking off uh, would have been, it's uh, westbound. And, and mind you, he's running right for the PD. He's basically across the street from our district. So I'll always say that there's about 2 million things that went through my head in the next 30 seconds. I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating. There's probably literally about 200 things. It would take me an hour to sit down and write them down, and I still remember them to this day. And the, the things about, oh, he's going for the PD. Um, that does, we can't get on the air. Uh, you know, is, does he have an accomplice? I mean, all that stuff starts flying through your head at, at crazy supercomputer speed. You exaggerated and, by, by about a million. Well, a million. Two so. million yeah. But I, I always remember thinking there was hundreds of thoughts that actually ended up going through my head at really high speed. The, the human brain has a capacity to process massive amounts of information if you've prepared your brain to do it. I really think that if you're prone to panic or prone to having issues with, um, you know, uh, just calming down and dealing with things, which again, cops are trained to do. I mean, we've seen a few cops out there that kind of maybe can't handle the stress as well. But I really, I really uh, attribute that to riding with Brian. We train each other mentally every day. We would do scenarios every day, you know. There's a liquor store. Hey, what if a guy walks in there with a shotgun right now and he doesn't see us? What do we do? Get around behind, get on the air, call for backup. You know, we just run it to our head and then, then drop it and then think of another one an hour later, you know. So that was really cool. So that night when we swung in behind him, I started thinking all these things and we made our move and started heading for the, it started going after him. And remember we made it to about the, the little bridge that goes over Sweet Hollow before you get to the PD there. And, um, the only thing I could get out on the air was 363. We got one running and then trying to get on there. And I think I just said 363 one more time. And after that, um, we were engaged with this guy in the parking lot of the school right across the street from East Team. Yeah, I mean, I as I rolled up, I put my gun out the window and I yelled, I'm going to shoot your ass because I saw him reach up and begin to take the shotgun off his off his back, off his sling, you know, remove it. And it's another thing. I don't know how to explain it, but I knew he was not going to drop it. I don't know how I knew that. I just knew this guy was meaning business, and I, I, I'll never be able to explain how I knew it. But he ducked in behind some trees. I had fired one round. I actually fired, and he disappeared. He's dressed in all black, and he's just vanished into the darkness and the trees, and the, there's a little shed back there, and he got behind it. I whip into the lot. He opens his door. Cause I think he's expecting me to stop and let him out. And so he's going to do the foot chase Well, we get right past that shed. And he had set up basically a hasty ambush behind that shed and waited for me to come in front of his view. And he opened up. It was a, it was a perfect ambush. It was a very and normally what Dan and I had done in the past when we had somebody flee from us in a car is, you know, you, Dan would usually be driving. He'd try to blow past the guy running, let me out. So about the same time he's catching up to the car where I'm right there, or uh, if he doubles back, I can run back around. But 
So I'd had the, I had had the door propped open with just my foot wedging kind of into the door frame to keep the door open. And I was waiting for him to slow down as he pulled into the church parking lot. The school. Or the, yep, the school. And um, as he slowed down a little bit, I, I started to kind of step out of the car. And Dan never stopped. And I think that's because he was he was shot at that point. I was taking rounds. And I, I just kind of, I had already kind of committed to stepping out. So I rolled out and. Um, the video shows it. He steps out and kind of. He does, he kind of just kind of spins and falls on his butt, but never really tumbles or wipes out. And then he just, as the car goes out of his way, I'm ghost riding the car now because I've been hit twice. I felt the, the impact on my left forearm and then my left upper back, just, just by the arm hole of the vest. Well, you I, were reaching for the pictures. spotlight, I think. That's, that's, that's what I was doing, reaching for the spotlight. And that's why the first round came right in the open window blew out my forearm and went right in front of his chest. See, and I didn't know that until they showed me the video months later. I thought I dumped him out as we whipped into the parking lot way back by the street. So when I saw the video, that's when I really got chills because that round went right in front of his chest. And had he been leaning forward to look out my window to say, what is, what's going on out there? He'd have caught that round in the face. So the round blows through my arm. Second one hits me in the vest. That first one you know, goes out, hits a wall, explodes. Brian doesn't know I'm hit, and guess the best part is, I'm, I'm like, I'm leaving, I can't go left, because that's where the rounds are coming from, plus I couldn't open that door if I wanted to, and I didn't know it at the time, because of how shattered the arm was, but I remember, you know, after this, I put my foot on the door, on the driver's door, and just launched out over the computer, right over the laptop, and out, slid right out that door, just as the car hit the dumpster, and the best part of the night is, just for fun, my foot tripped a siren. <laughs> So now there's a screaming siren in the middle of a gunfight that didn't need to be there. I'm screaming for Brian going, Brian, I'm hit, I'm hit. But the siren's blazing. He's, a, he's in an active gunfight firing 22 rounds in 14 seconds. I mean, it was insane. And by the time someone were able to, it was a minute and 36 seconds where someone was able to run up and shut that siren off. Because I'm out on my knees scrambling for my tourniquet because I see the arm now. I see what, what happened. And when I show people the photos, it's it's um, usually the same reaction. It's quite, oh, you know, pretty graphic. So um, when I saw that and I started fumbling for the tourniquet, I don't think Brian even knew I was hit until the siren was off. Maybe you can confirm that. Um, when I was in the parking lot returning to fire at this guy, um, I could hear Dan screaming in the background. But I didn't know if he had been hit or if he was just, screaming to see if I was okay. Um, I could kind of tell by the tone of the scream that he was in pain, but obviously everything was happening at warp speed. Um, yeah. At the same time, it was happening in slow motion. It's it's really hard to explain how time warps when you're in a situation like that. Um, but I remember um, I fired a full magazine at the guy, um, he was down, but I could see he still had the shotgun. And I found out later that it was it was tied to tied to his sweatshirt, so he basically couldn't drop it. And I did a reload, and I fired, uh, I believe, four more rounds at him. And I went up, approached him, confirmed he wasn't moving, and I didn't, you know, I probably should have went and handcuffed him and secured him, but Dan was still screaming and I wanted to, I wanted to go. 
I figured he was at least hit pretty bad because he, he wasn't moving anymore. Um, the bad guy, yeah. And I, was, uh, I ran back to Dan, and he was on. He was sitting um, on the passenger side of the car by the wheel, the the pass front passenger wheel, and his shirt, the front of his shirt, was absolutely covered in blood, and I couldn't see his arm. It looked like his arm had been blown off at the elbow, because um, I think it was kind of folded under him, and I just yeah. got on the air and started screaming, uh, "Signal thirteen, uh, start medics." And at that point, cops were just pouring across the street from East District. And well, when you when you hear the audio, the dispatch audio, they keep saying, "What's your location? What's your location?" And fortunately, another copper was in the back parking lot on the other side of the building doing a report. And he said, "You got a bunch of shots fired outside of East Team here, Dave Randall." And he said he thinks this is where it's happening. So he came around first. He's the one who was able to shut the siren off. The whole time I was screaming at Brian, I was yelling signal 13, but not into my radio. I was yelling, Brian, I'm hit. I'm hit. Are you there? Are you there? You know, because I, I didn't know if he was hit now because it was just gunfire in the dark. Muzzle flash. I could not see what was happening. And that was the scary part for me, even though now I know I'm seriously injured. But my EMS background, I think, kicked in a little bit, too. And I realized just just deal with this. And once the siren shut off, you, you get to hear the audio. What's what was going on there? So it was pretty wild. But um, I know that uh, Brian got extremely upset at that point as far as, you know, mad. He was angry that this would happen. And everybody's yelling, get medics coming, get him in here, get him in here. So it was uh, once we realized how bad it was, because I didn't have any pain for about the first minute. And then it was the worst pain in my entire history of life. It was like fire. Every nerve that wasn't destroyed was hot, was working. So it was, it was like being burned. It was pretty intense. So that was wild stuff. And, uh, yeah, Brian was really upset and called the guy a few names and Brian had to be escorted away from going back over to the guy and maybe delivering a few more rounds. But, uh, he, uh, he, he was, he was rightfully upset that his partner was hurt. So do you, do you remember that upsetness, Brian? I do. Yeah. And, um, and when I say upset, it doesn't, people, when we, normal, regular people hear the word upset. Yeah, good point. It, it was, he was straight up enraged. Yeah, I was, uh, I was going to say, I was, I was enraged. And yeah. it was basically that somebody had the nerve to shoot at us. And I just saw that, at, at that point, I honestly didn't know if he was going to live or die. Because there was so much blood. And um, I was just, yeah, I'm sure he was mad. stunned, mad, angry. There was actually when they were loading me into the ambulance, I kept yelling, is he dead? Is he dead? I was angry. Now I was hot because of the pain. And it was the same thing. How dare he shoot at us? And obviously people don't, you know, consider why they shoot at people sometimes. But, you know, it's the heat of the moment. Yeah. I mean, it was just one of those. And it's not that uh, we're above being shot at, but it's just so uncommon (laughs) that, uh, I mean, I think, well, it's almost like that because soldiers, you know, I know they expect to go into a hot zone. And I know that we can suddenly find ourselves in one just like that night. But it's so uncommon for us when you consider there's a million cops in this country. And I know we're getting hit every day now, but, you know, in a a combat zone, you're taking rounds every day. We don't. And then it was my turn that day. It was our turn. Yeah. And the the anger was just like, is he dead or not? I was just mad. And then, you know, once I got in the rig and they started working on me and getting an IV in and everything, I was just like, we got to go, man, this hurts. And then I had gotten the tourniquet on and I found out later I'd lost half my blood in two minutes. So, 
you can live with as little as 10% of your blood. You won't be conscious at that point, but you can live very, uh, with very little blood as long as the pump is still working and such. So we'll come back to this thing because I want to bring that up. But Brian, when he, when they took him away in the ambulance, what was that like to have him gone and whisked away? I, when the ambulance got there, they started working on him for a few minutes, I believe. I believe the ambulance was still on scene when yes. I got brought over in the East team and removed from the scene. And it's Did you just, walk there? I did. <laughs> yeah. I walked with uh, Adam Bravo. Was that brought me over. Isn't that it, was, something? That was, it was across the street. It was across yeah, the I know, across I know the but street. it's remarkable to think that... Uh, well, and to touch on that quickly, I'm just thankful that that is where it happened because if it would have been in a spot where there's not cops in the lot to hear that at roll call base. Well, yeah, basically midnight roll call. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who knows how long it takes? You know what I mean? Right. I mean, if the, if the public doesn't come out and call, if, if we're in a different yeah. part of town, you know, he very well could have died. Um, but anyway, yeah, I got brought inside the PD and, um, I remember just at that point I was kind of in shock. Like during the incident, it was kind of surreal because it felt like the only way I could describe it was kind of like being inside the eye of a hurricane, just complete calm, complete quiet. Like I remember during the incident, like I wasn't nervous. I wasn't scared. It was just like, okay, this is what's happening and this is what I need to do to deal with it. And then when all that caught up, and it ended, that's when I got, you know, super, just super, you know, I didn't feel good. I felt like I was going to vomit. Depleted. Yeah. yeah. Just completely Adrenaline spent. Adrenaline Yeah. Yeah. Sad, not knowing what happened to Dan. Um, I remember trying to call my wife. Um, and I all, I, all I could do was cry. I was just sobbing on the phone and Adam had to take the phone from me and, and literally tell my wife what happened. It's pretty wild. I, I, uh, Good details. I, re- I remember as the, as the, the pain kicked in, that told me the adrenaline was actually coming down. And I, I knew, um, I was in big trouble, but I, on the scene, I was really freaked because the bullet that the, the slug, there was a 12 gauge slug that went into my vest in the back. I, once the tourniquet was on, I fully, you hear me here say it on the audio. I said, the, the arm is gone. I fully had written off that arm. I thought, they're going to amputate it. I don't care. I just want to live through this. I want to stop bleeding. Then I got really worried because, again, our medical background as paramedics tells us, I know the anatomy and the trajectory of that bullet, and I'm more worried about, my, my number one, my aorta, my lungs. And I, so I told the guys, I told the guys on the scene, get this stuff off me. Get the, they, they pulled my duty belt, get the vest off me. I need to know if that thing got through because I figured I'm going to start puking pink foam any minute. And I'm in a serious world of hurt when it comes to the, right. the, uh, respiratory and the system. Cause we all know about trooper coats 23 or four years ago, took a 22 in the arm vest, you know, where we don't have coverage underneath your armpit. And he, with a 22, he bled to death in four minutes cause it got his aorta. And I'm, I'm telling you, I remembered that at that moment. Mm. I said, this is the one that scares me because the arm is shattered and gone in my mind. They can amputate that. Right. And I've got the bleeding somewhat <laughs> controlled. But uh, that one scared me. And then they're like, no, Kinger, it didn't, it didn't go through. Okay, okay, okay. You know, and then I'm like, okay, now I know I'm going to make it. Then I knew it. 
I was never thought I was going to die, but I knew I was in big trouble. So let me ask you guys, do you have any, uh, if you don't mind me asking any physical or reaction right now in retelling it? Does, did you get, tra- do you get transported back in any way? You know, and Brian, um, yeah, in a way, I think, I think we do. Um, at least I do kind of go back to that night. Um, it's, it's funny because your hands just kind of start getting a little sweaty again. Like you're, you're playing it through your mind again. And, um, so yeah, I think it, I think it, I mean, I don't have a problem talking about it, but it, it, um, it definitely still, still has an effect. Yeah. I I think, go ahead. I I feel that, uh, obviously the, the retelling of it, I, like it, right at the moment, obviously no one can see me, but I'm, I stare off in the distance because I'm trying to bring up all the, the detail. And I find it comforting to talk about it. I really do. Um, it's almost like therapy. I've uh, been very fortunate, not a single flashback, nightmare, mm-hmm. um, panic attack, which I, I'm not a subscriber to. I, I, I think that if people can just control your, your thinking, your mind a little bit, you're going to be okay. I know Brian can do it. And... I, I've been very fortunate. I'm not saying that it, I'm, something couldn't happen years from now. We've heard of trauma resurfacing you know, 20 years later. But me talking about it and going around and, and, and teaching the lessons of the night and the whole mental prepara- preparedness and the way we the way we think, the way we operate, really kind of helps me. So I, think I like it. I like it, too. I like what you're saying because um, things aren't traumatic until they're experienced as traumatic. And some people, even traumatic experiences are healthfully processed so we don't necessarily forget it but we may not have the original emotion connected after time and you may remember this too where at first you couldn't speak about it without halting or a lot of emotion in your throat and then over time it gradually changed and and i, I do think for some people i mean if, if humans weren't able to survive psychological trauma we wouldn't be the top of the heap no no and, not at all and, um, and i don't like i personally I'm very reluctant to make automatic assumptions about psychological harm. You know, that's what um, Grossman and some of the other, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman and some of the others have said, that don't let people talk you into believing you should be having a bad time. I mean, he had to take a life. Is he supposed to break down now? No. He's supposed to process it and do it. A side story, he was at a side job, what, a year later? And the guy was puffing up a tire at his gas station. He blew it up. And Brian had always said he never heard the shotgun that night because it was just tunnel, you know, like focused. He gets on the phone to me in about a minute and a half and goes, hey. And he starts laughing. He goes, I remember hearing the gunfire now. I said, Brian, I told you all along you heard it. You just didn't remember it. Fascinating. And that, and that it reminded him because he, he went for his gun and twisted halfway. You know, he didn't draw, but he's like, oh. And it brought him back to that night in that one second. So it was pretty wild how the memory can be tripped again. So did, um, let me ask you about the tourniquet. And that's just a paramedic talk. Yeah. Um, you and I were both paramedics, and uh, we—I don't know—the the department hasn't had many paramedics on the job. I can think of maybe one other, but um, so we had that in common. We even rode rode together once or twice. Yeah. I think you were trying to find a report writer to ride with you. <laughs> I actually like reports. I wrote. I wrote a lot of them. So, um, so we talked about that, and we actually downplayed it as far as we wanted to use our skills for other cops. Yeah. Two, you know, yeah. and um, you were the only cop I ever. Uh, so first of all, I became a paramedic in the early 80s in Spokane, Washington during the AIDS epidemic. 
And I was the first paramedic to wear, routinely wear rubber gloves on calls. Really? Like, because no one ever used to do that. I remember meeting you and finding out that you carried a tourniquet with you all the time. And I yeah. thought, that makes sense. And you're the only cop I've ever met. Now, this, things have changed dramatically that carried a tourniquet. And your intention was, if I ever need it or another cop needs it. Yeah. I, I, I fully intended it. to use it on us more than the public because we got the medics to show up and help sure. them. And, and direct pressure works most yeah. almost all the time. I mean, I would have used it on the public, but it, it's uh, people don't know this, but it was a docker's belt with two D-rings in it. It wasn't even a real tourniquet. Yeah. It was just a strap. I figured I could use it to hold a door open, active shooter, maybe drag someone. I had not purchased a really good one yet. And the only other person who did sometimes carry was Brad Hazlett. Okay. He's a uh, uh, former Marine, so he, he, he would carry, but yeah. occasionally. And uh, so he came running out there that night, and he's going, Dan, where's your tourniquet? Where's your tourniquet? And yeah. it was already on, but it was all covered in blood and everything, and he didn't know it. But, yeah, the tourniquet. Who would have thought um, you'd use it on yourself? Well, you know. In a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a time where you really need a tourniquet. Well, you know, and the Civil War, of course, people were losing limbs. They were on for days. And in Vietnam, they hated tourniquets because they thought people were going to lose limbs. Well, Iraq and Afghanistan have taught us, um, and I've read studies on this um, because I did it when I was getting my master's, is we talked about trauma. And you can leave them on for hours as long as they're monitored and, and taken care of. So they're coming back. And I remember after the 97 shootout in North Hollywood, that one cop was under a tree mm -hmm. and he had to take off his underbelt and, and crunch down and his own turn, kind of make his own. Right. And he was able to, he even passed out, but he was able to save his own life with it. And I thought, why do we not have tourniquets in 1997? Why didn't we have rifles before the millennium? And you know how the sure. culture is. It takes something really big. Well, 18 months after this, every cop in the Metro had a tourniquet. So, and uh, there's a cop, um, Chief Ed Delmore down in Gulf Shores, he uh, works for Caliber Press on the side, teaches. He uh, contacted me and said, hey, I'm going to fly you and Brian both down here on a little mini vacation. I need you to teach your little uh, presentation to two of my roll calls. He said, you are the reason my people carry tourniquets. And I'm like, That's, that made me feel good. That's really, I'm really proud of that. So um, I know Brian and I went down there and we did, the, we did our debriefing and we really had a good time. And they were really thankful and it just helped get the message out. I met him in an airport, and uh, we talked about you there. Oh, yeah? Um, I want to make a, do a, qu a quick commercial here, and then we'll get back to it. Um, uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, you might be interested in my book. It's called Good Cop, Good Cop, A Get Healthy, Stay Healthy Guide for Law Enforcement. And I cover uh, topics of like critical incidents, uh, even some of the things that you guys talk about, mind warping and time warping and these altered sensations. If you're interested in my book or this podcast or Blue Watch uh, Officer Wellness Train, you can um, purchase the book at, on Amazon or you can uh, go to goodcopgoodcop.com to find out more about those other things. And I actually was thinking of you too in writing the dedication on my book because I changed it from the very first edition for you two guys. Oh, thank um, you. Because I had put something in there I didn't like and I did, was afraid you wouldn't like it. I literally thought that. That's funny. Uh, I'll tell you later what it was, but the dedication is, um, besides to my wife, Terry, and my kids, it was uh, to the cops working at this very moment who act to defend, protect, and provide, willingly occupying the space between order and disorder. That's it. Um, so, so, how has your life changed, Dan? A little bit. Not much. <laughs> I... Uh, 
Well, your, obviously, it was I, your left arm, so you're all right. Yes, I, I'm right-handed, so I don't have to learn how to write again. And you know, I can still do things around the house, but it is definitely messed up. They amputated the left index finger about a year later um, because it just was hanging there, and it wasn't dead, but it wasn't functional. So it wasn't necrotic or falling off, but it was just in the way. And it took him about four minutes to talk me into taking it off. My surgeon was the same surgeon all through all 18 surgeries. And uh, I lost a significant amount of uh, bone and muscle structure in there. And there's two big railroad tracks in there, metal for life. And then there's the pain and the numbness and the tingling and all that stuff. But once you get past that, all the surgeries, at th three years later, I retired in 15. And uh, I was light duty the whole time and, you know, on and off surgeries. Uh, work comp started testing me and getting me ready for a transition to another career. And I immediately selected and wanted to get in on teaching. Uh, I figured that's the best. I really always enjoyed teaching at the academy. And I really enjoyed, you know, just being in, in a classroom and, and then hands-on stuff. So they uh, paid for me to finish my bachelor's in police science. I got my master's in educational leadership and began job searching. And uh, currently I have a job now with the Dakota County Sheriff's Office. Um, I'm running their evidence and property room now. I was a civilian, but I get to be back in the law enforcement world, and I kind of like that. Emotionally, um, I'm still here. I'm still having a good time. My wife's been really, really supportive. My best friend over here, my brother. We get together when we can, and we just keep on trucking. You know, we keep on moving. <laughs> Brian, I heard you on. Thanks, Dan. I heard you on the air today, so you're out grinding away, uh, doing uh, yeah, patrol still, work. Still on patrol. Um, currently, I'm uh, assigned to the downtown beat patrol, and our main responsibilities are to basically, you know, patrol the skyways, answer any calls for service that happen in there, um, in the immediate downtown area. Um, shortly after Dan's shooting, I, um, or our shooting, I should say, I, I ended up putting in for downtown just because, um, I kind of needed a break from the, the, the fast paced meat grinder, meat grinder <laughs> that, uh, East is East district. Um, part of it was, you know, I, I wanted to, uh, support my wife a little bit more she had that dan and i had actually been in a, a shooting um about six months prior to the shooting that night so we were going on two shoot two officer involved shootings you know in in nine months yeah. and that that's a lot to put a spouse through um she's very supportive she 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 knows that this is all i've ever wanted to do but at the same time i i I knew I kind of had an obligation to um, not have her have to worry about me as much, just with the change of assignment um, downtown. It's just it's a different animal. You're you're dealing with you know, more you know business people and and things like that. So I wanted to give her that. I thought that was fair. Um, so I've been there. I still I, I miss East. Um, so do I. it still feels like, like my home. Um, and I'm sure I'll end up there again someday, but for now, this is a good situation for my family. I always say I, I, uh, I don't certainly don't miss the politics, but I miss my crew. You know, mm -hmm. I miss, I miss the team cause we'd be running around every night just trying to get the bad people on the street and that's what we do. And we enjoyed it. And we stepped up a lot just to stay busy. 
And so mm-hmm. we just want to stay busy. And because, uh, you know, a 10-hour shift, if you're not trying to stay busy, you can get buried in a lot of nothing or you just make the effort to get out there and shake it up. So that's what we did. And as far as, again, like my life now is just nice and calm and simple. And again, I, I do miss it, um, but uh, I'm just glad to be alive and kept most of my arm. Uh, the whole thing took 21 seconds. I wrote an article for Caliber Press saying back to school in 21 seconds because I ended up back in school because of a 21-second incident, and I'm, I was not going to be a cop again. And that night, you'll even hear me say, I'm done, I'm done. And I didn't mean death. I meant I knew my career was over. I knew the amount of damage. I had seen less damaged arms get amputated, so I thought there's no way they're going to keep this thing. So... By uh, excellent skill of the surgeon, I was able to keep it, but um, I'm moving along pretty well now, and the department took good care of us. And basically, my, my whole light duty three years uh, between surgeries was where do you want to work? You know, go here for a while. I was in training for a while, and then I was in uh, narcotics for a little bit, and then I was in the force unit. And I have people I know in all those units, so I was able to come in and help out a little bit, even though I really couldn't get out on my own and jump out and everything. But uh, they took good care of us. Um, and I know that uh, to this day, there's still people, hey, how you guys doing? And you yourself bringing us in here shows that there's people still thinking about us. It's been seven, over seven years now, but we're we're uh, we're doing it. We, we, we get out to dinner with the wives every year, the anniversary or close to it. So I think they treated us pretty well. I know that uh, there's always bumps in the road. And uh, we had one incident with a commander that made a comment we didn't care about, but uh, that we didn't care for. But, you know, it's one of these where... Uh, basically overall the team and the the family was there you know the, our blue family sure how about you buddy um i guess i would just like to uh, give some credit to the training staff um they're just phenomenal guys our our range guys um josh lego was our head dt instructor in the academy I remember him talking to us one day and he said be ready for when the day chooses you and that never, that never left my head. Basically, the mindset of it, it, just plan as not if, but when. That way, if it does happen to you, you've been there before in your mind. And I, I can't tell you how much that stuck with me, but it's so true. And I hope that's getting passed on to the new cops that are coming on. Um, because I think there's probably a lot of cops who are like, oh, you know, it's never going to happen to me. It'll never happen to me. And then if it happens once, so it'll never happen to me again. And then it does. So I think you always have to kind of go through work expecting something bad to happen. Or maybe not expecting, but just being prepared for something bad to happen. So in the event it does, you've, you've been there, maybe not the exact same situation, but a similar situation in your mind. That's what I was talking about. So you're not going to, you're not panicking and, and not having the mindset of, oh, I can't believe this is happening to me right now. What's my saying, Brian? Chance Chance favors favors the prepared mind. Mm -hmm. Um, We, when we do the, uh, like you said, it's not really a debrief. It's more of a presentation. We, the first slide to come up says that. Mm -hmm. And I, I, to this day, I lived like that before the shooting and I definitely live like it now. Chance favors the prepared mind. If you're on the, if you're on the edge, 50, 50, one way or the other. And your mind is already wrapped around getting through this and dealing with it. You can pull through just about anything, nice. and that's the way I think about it. Let's see. If someone wanted to 
contact you or learn more, maybe even an agency might want you to speak to them or even bring your video and do your one-hour presentation on this topic, how would, what would you suggest? They can just contact me through the Dakota County Sheriff's Office. The, um, let me end with this. Do you remember, each of you, the first time you ever saw a police car or a police officer? Yes. Um, believe it or not, I was a firefighter and a paramedic for a long time, and when I was a kid, anybody my age, I can tell you how old if you want, remembers a show called Emergency with Johnny Gage and Roy DeSoto, and I saw that, and I said, I'm doing that. I'm going to be a firefighter. I was six, seven years old. I'm going to be a firefighter. I'm going to be a medic. And I really, really wanted that. About 10 years old, uh, it was a cop just on patrol, came down the street and stopped and got out and talked to us. And it was one of those, oh, uh, I hadn't even been near a fire engine yet, you know, because I wanted to be a firefighter, paramedic. This cop got out, showed us the car, was just talking to us. I'll never forget that feeling of, wow, this, this is really cool. This is really neat. So I, I, it always was in the back of my head uh, that when it did come time to transition from EMS, that it was a natural one. That was where I, I needed to what go next. What city was that? that uh, what town? I lived in, I grew up in Hastings. So it was in Hastings. Yeah. So he just came down Tyler Street and just said, uh, hey guys, what's you doing? We're just standing around and he just got out and talked with us and we were just blown away. So it was pretty cool. So 10 years old. Yeah. How about you, Brian? Well, ironically enough, um, I was involved in a car accident when I was three years old. Um, I had an older sister at the time, Erin. She was five and it was on Shepherd Road in St. Paul. And my sister actually passed away in this car accident. And St. Paul police responded, St. Paul fire. Um, so I don't necessarily remember it being a St. Paul cop, but I do remember sirens. And my mom and dad said, like, after that day, I would always play with, like, police cars and fire trucks and make the sound of sirens. So it, it could go back as, as early as three years old where something in the back of my memory remembered that. And that's pretty much the only thing I've ever wanted to do. Wow. I, I, I didn't know that, that's, that history. I don't know if others do. Have you ever told the people at the work? That? Um, some people at work who, who I'm closer with. Um, but, um, yeah, it's just, you know, it's, it's kind of weird how life works out. It does. And interestingly, uh, growing up in St. Paul, like I did, Shepherd Road was considered a really dangerous roadway down by the river. Yep. Um, the reason I asked that question is I remember the very first time I ever saw a police car. It was a St. Paul police car. It was a sky blue one, and it was at Creighton and Marshall. My sister had taken me, uh, I think, downtown Minneapolis and got off the bus. And I looked across the street and saw that police car. And the reason I bring that up is you men are talking about the work you do, the why, why you do it, and why you do it well, and why you continue to do it, why you miss it. It's significant to me that you've been thinking about this job since you were a child. I would, yes. I'm guessing you or like me, that you feel called, it's a calling. I think 100%. I agree. Yeah, there's no doubt. Um, I always knew I wanted to be uh, doing something that would be useful, helpful. And I'm not saying any other job that doesn't involve first responders isn't. That's not what I mean. It's just I wanted to be in the action. I wanted to have fun. And I wanted to help out at the same time. You know, and then when they say, why do you want to be a cop? I mean, there is no other answer than I do want to help people. That, yeah. that is the answer. But you got to find a unique way to say it or you sound like you're just, you know, repeating it. So 
I, I just always wanted to get in there and do something. And I, I felt I had a natural ability to not take the work home and not, you know, have serious problems. There's things, of course, I'll never forget beyond this, um, you know, beyond this incident, but as a medic, some of the, some of the death and some of the good times too. So, but I never brought it home and never melted down. And I don't think Brian does either. I think he knows when to let go, go be with the family. And I think that's a key element that if you can really do that, especially if you have a natural ability to do that, you're, you're money ahead. You know, and if you do this work, I don't think you, if you really dedicate yourself to work, I don't think the public can have it both ways. I mean, you can't leave this job without some scratches and dents. And I'll tell you, and maybe you as you guys as well, I know I'm been a little harmed by this job. Absolutely. But that's I'm okay with it. I, I don't I don't expect not to have some I don't know if the harm is the right word for it. Well, I mean I don't treat it like an enemy. I feel like it was part of being really in there. What I'm worried about now is the new people coming on. I know Brian agrees with me. Uh, they're not being prepared, I think, in some cases for the trauma of what they're going to see and do. You've got a lot of administrations that are not really up with the warrior concept or with the physicality of the job and what has to be done. Cameras, you know, are out there and that's good. I don't have a problem with cameras, um, but they're making cops hesitate. And I think people are getting hurt, uh, both civilian and police. And I don't know if some of these uh, new people understand the the uh, levels of violence that are going to get you know leveled on them and others because sometimes some of the worst calls are when you go and you see somebody uh, the innocent the elderly uh, children or animals that have been just abused or severely injured and or even killed and, and i never could understand why people do what they do so i stopped trying to figure it out i just basically dealt with it how about you brian yeah i just i hope our um our up-and-coming cops just, you know, take the time to really learn what this job can is about and the effects it can have on your, your everyday life, um, that they're prepared for trauma. And, and I just, you know, I hope they stay safe and I hope they realize that... Um, you know, there's a lot of bad people out there. There's a lot of good people out there. And to be able to act accordingly at the flip of a switch. I, I, I agree because I think the key there is, is preparing your mind, mental prep. That's just, that's my message from number one is run the scenarios in your head. Be ready for when it does happen. Because again, if your mind's already like, oh, I knew something was going to come. And I asked my wife six months before this, she kept saying, you kept coming home and saying, you know, when I get hit, there's, you know, there's going to be a lot of things moving around. And, and she's like, how do you know? How do you know? And I said, I don't know how I know. I just know that I was at about uh, the burnout level in my career because I think there's a 10, 11 year mark where you can start to fade a little bit because you, you're pretty much comfortable with it. And yet you've seen enough to where you know you should be careful, but maybe you're not as careful as you used to be. But the bottom line is I knew something was coming she kept saying it was a dark cloud it was a dark cloud i said i'm just preparing my mind for it because i know that where we work in the last five cops to die in st paul have been killed on the east side including one that wasn't even a st paul cop so um it's just it's it's a heavy area and it's not to say that it couldn't happen anywhere but i just i was ready for it and i think if these new people can just understand that it could happen to them get some pre-training you know some mental prep okay uh, let me just say it this way. I really love that comment about getting your mind right. Mm -hmm. 
got to get your mind right. And I'll just add a, a kind of a protective factor and some wellness talk on top of that. And that is, I, I have a belief that if you, you should seek to be well-fed, and you can interpret that a couple ways, well-rested, well-loved, and well-purposed. And, and, and even Brian talked about the sacrifices he makes for his family, which is what real grown-ups do to protect that and to protect that sacred thing. And then also the uh, well-purposed is why you do what you do. So, Yeah, I hear you. It's, um, it's one of those where, again, if you prepare your mind, I think you can really do extraordinary things. And I, I don't think I'm any better than any cop ever, anywhere ever. But I do know that I'm better prepared for this, or I was. I think I still am if something else were to happen. Um, and that's only because I took the time to train, not because I'm better at anything. I just decided to accept that. And uh, if if these uh, if the newer people coming on, you know, the, again, it's not all doom and gloom. You're gonna get you know hurt. It's gonna be bad, you know. But if you if you can really just get your mind around it, I think you're gonna really be a lot more comfortable out there. And uh, get some of the training, get some of the counseling early on, and say, hey, you know, that call last night bothered me. Say something to somebody, you know, get some help. So. Good work, boys. We appreciate, appreciate you having it. us on. Brian. Thank you very much You're for doing this. a lot of good things for our police department and other departments, and it's definitely needed. It's it's a hard job. I think it's only getting harder, and cops need to find a way to to deal with it and and get help. So thank you. Appreciate You're it. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs>